For the last three years that I was working with Atomic Energy of Canada, along with 12 other people in, in our company, um, I was being trained in, in um, public communication, especially to the media, because my work was in the area of nuclear safety. The two people who were training us, uh, I'll call them Max and Joe, they're not their real names, uh, were extremely good at their work, and so it was very profitable training for me. About halfway through the training program, they asked me whether I would like to come and actually join the team and teach them, teach as well, either temporarily or eventually, maybe even permanently. And so I got to know them a lot better. I discovered, because they were extremely good, they commanded very high consulting fees, and so their lifestyle was a high-rolling lifestyle, expensive hotels, fine restaurants, uh, and unfortunately, lots of womanizing as well. About two years after I joined uh, Atomic Energy of Canada, the, one of them, Max, he died. I got a call from his secretary, and she said, would you like to come for his memorial service? I said, sure. So I attended it. It was a Unitarian kind of a service that was just a wishy-washy kind of a service where the minister just kind of soothed everybody with some nice little placebos, fooling nobody in the congregation that included ex-wives and children and stepchildren and all kinds of people. At the end of that, some of them invited me. They said, hey, we're going over to the bar for drinks. Would you like to join us? Interesting way to follow up a funeral service. Well, I excused myself and came back here to work. But here's a question. What if while those people were all milling around in the bar... Max would have suddenly rise from the grave and appear there. What do you think they would do? <laughs> would they, in sheer terror and fright, said, another round of scotch on the rocks and make it double? <laughs> or would they run to that minister and shake her and said, everything you said was wrong, call the people back again? Maybe you've sat through funeral services like that of neighbors, of colleagues. Of course, we don't know the answer. Things like that don't happen. Dead people don't come back from the grave for whatever reason. But the parable that Jesus is going to walk us through this morning actually gives us an answer to that question. And as I walk you through that parable, it's, I'm just going to be like watching a three-act play. And there's much background information that you probably don't have that you will need in order to get everything you need to out of this play. You need someone to fill in those backgrounds. I remember several years ago when my son Vijay persuaded several of us to sit and watch the first of the trilogy, The Lord of the Rings. He had read the books and watched all of them. I had read none of the books. And I couldn't understand anything in this movie at all. And he had to keep on whispering in the middle and filling in the blanks for me. And I still didn't get it. So my sermon today is going to be like filling in the blanks for you as you're watching a play. And I would like you to, it's hard, it's hard for those of us who already know the scriptures. If you've never heard this parable, you actually are an advantage over the rest of us today. Because I want to invite you to try and listen to this parable in a way the original audience of Jesus would have heard it, not knowing what was coming. Okay, Try your best to do it that way. Well, the curtain rises on Act 1. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. The purple dye that was needed to dye clothes purple came from a particular species of mussel. It was an extremely expensive fish, and it, only the most wealthy people could afford purple robes of this kind. Not only was his outer garment spectacular, so were his undergarments. The, the fine linen, probably referring to Egyptian flax, was also extremely expensive. And so this man dressed himself, and it says, every day in fine linen, from what you couldn't see to what you could see. In addition to that, it says he feasted sumptuously every day. 
through lunch or dinner parties every day, presumably for other people of his social strata to come and see him and to be able to see the tremendous wealth that he had and the status that it probably implied, certainly did in, that, in the society that Jesus walked in. Now I'd also notice that he says he feasted sumptuously every day, which means he did not give his servants a break on Sabbath, which he was supposed to do. Probably had no time to go to the synagogue either. So here was a man for whom self-indulgence, a display of his wealth, and the exhibition of his status was far more important than God's commandments. But outside his gate, the camera shifts to the outside his gate, was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. If one man was covered with purple and fine linen, the other man was covered from head to foot with sores. He was so sick that he couldn't even stand up. He was lying outside the gates of this rich man. And when it says there that he was laid there, the, the Greek verb in the original carries the idea of being flung there, almost not caring where the person landed. So even the people who brought him there probably saw him as a burden. Dumped him outside the gates of the only man who probably was wealthy enough in the village to do something about him. It says he desired to eat the fruit, the crumbs that fell from the table. Another word that implies desiring but not getting. If you were here last week and Pastor Sam walked you through the young man who ended up in the feeding the pigs. Desiring to be fed with that food but not getting it. Exactly the same word in this parable as well. And what's more, the final ignominy was the food that he didn't get was being given to the dogs. Whether these were guard dogs of the estate or the stray dogs that are around, we don't know. I suspect that people walking by, the guests that came each day to the banquets, saw him and ignored him. The physical suffering must have been real to be covered from head to foot with sores. But the psychological suffering must have been even harder. Villages were closely compacted together so he either saw or could certainly hear the revelry that was going on inside. And all he desired was the crumbs. And even the dogs were treated as more significant than him. And slowly this insignificance made this man invisible. People stopped noticing. Lazarus at the door just blended into the landscape. Help was so near and yet it wasn't coming. Which brings us to the first significance of this man's name. In all the parables that Jesus told, and I think there are 38 of them, I didn't count recently. This is the only individual who's named in any of the parables. And there's one minor and one major reason for it. The major one we'll have to wait till the end of the play for. The word Lazarus means the man God helps. And that's the irony of the situation. Here was this helpless guy covered from head to foot with sores. Was happy to feast on the crumbs that was given to the dogs. And, and yet he was a man that God helps. Not only had he been, become invisible to the people, looks like he had become invisible to God as well. Well, it's not hard to understand if you grew up in a country like I did. I grew up in India for the first 22 years of my life, and there were beggars everywhere. There were beggars outside the school gates where I went to school. There were beggars at every street corner. There were beggars outside the temples. There were beggars outside the churches. And you know, after a while, you don't see them anymore. They just blend into the landscape and they become invisible. I didn't realize how invisible they became until I came to North America at the age of 22 and went back four years later. I was, it was an onslaught upon my eyes and my feelings. I saw them everywhere all the time. 
So before we proceed, here's my first question. By the way, today you aren't going to get a lot of answers, but you're going to be asked a lot of questions. My hope is that those questions will do an end run around your defenses and stay with you. Answers have an easy way of being forgotten. Questions have a way of sticking. Here's the first one. Who are the invisible people in our lives that God wants us to start noticing? I know in the middle of this week, God stopped me dead with this question, and he did bring someone to mind, a Lazarus that was very much within my field of reference, but having moved away from this church, I had lost sight of him. So I made amends. I picked up the phone, called him, got in touch with him, discovered what he was doing, and began to do something about it. Who are the invisible people in our lives that God wants us to start noticing? Well, let's get back to the story. Both men died. And you can just imagine the contrast in their funeral. They must have been as different in their death as in their life. The rich man's funeral must have been attended by many of his colleagues, all dressed out in their purple robes as well, all tripping over each other to say nice things about this man because he had fed them so often. Lazarus, probably dumped outside in a place called the Valley of Hinnom, where criminal bodies were just tossed, where there was a fire that was burning all the time, consumed. The curtain comes down on Act 1. And it rises on Act 2, and now the scene has shifted from Earth to a place called Hades. A little more of that in a minute. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. Now, the, something you need to men- understand here, the doctrine of the afterlife was very gradually developed in scriptures. There's hard, almost nothing about it in the Old Testament. Except this vague reference to two place, or a place called Sheol in Hebrew and Hades in the Greek. And that was the primary understanding at, around the time of Jesus. Our much more refined understanding of heaven and hell that developed later on wasn't around in the scriptures at that time. Both the righteous and the unrighteous dead were supposed to go to this nether world called Hades. A dark, gloomy place, not quite sure. And the same place was divided into two parts. One Abraham's bosom, which by the way doesn't mean someone tucked into Abraham like this. It probably implies a U-shaped dining table where the guest of honor sat at the right hand of the host. Very much like John leaning into Jesus' bosom at the last supper. And on the other hand, the people who suffered in torment. The very fact that Jesus chooses to anchor the story in that understanding of the afterlife when he knew much more was to, is to give that giveaway that the primary purpose of this parable has not to fill in all kinds of details about the afterlife. It is something else altogether that we will see as we keep moving along. Because by the time this play ends, you will realize it was nothing about what you thought it really was about. Evidently, in this place... The rich man was able to see Abraham and Lazarus, though far off. And as we will see in a minute, he was able to talk to them and listen to them talk to him. Which, of course, isn't exactly at all the picture of the most orthodox views of hell that we know today. So now put yourself in the place of the people who are listening when they, when they read this. What is he going to say now? He finally sees Lazarus in a very different setting. He sees him as a guest of honor at a table and he never invited him once to his table. Wouldn't even give him the crumbs. Would he finally apologize? Would he say something at all? Would he take notice of this man? Would he suddenly become visible? I mean, he saw him with his eyes. This is what he says. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I'm in anguish in this flame. It is beneath his dignity still to speak a word to Lazarus. They're not of the same social strata, you see. 
Abraham counted though. And his words to Abraham basically freely translated was saying something like this. Abraham, I'm, I'm in anguish here. I'm not used to this kind of thing. And that guy Lazarus, he seems to have recovered a lot. He's a lot better shape than he was now. Will you send him to help me? I need his help right now. Send him with some water to take care of me. That's the job, isn't it? He continues to demand service from the man that he wouldn't even give crumbs to on earth. Notice the arrogance in here. I mean, even if he wanted to curry favor with Abraham, he should have known from his dealings and wheelings on earth to at least acknowledge the guest of honor. If nothing else, to curry favor with Abraham. But he doesn't because, you see, he cannot imagine a society in which class structures are not important. He's important, Abraham is important, the Lazaruses of this world are never important. Think to the crowd once again and say, what is Lazarus going to say when he hears this? Because now Lazarus is in a position of influence. He can actually do something about it. And Kenneth Bailey, uh, in a book called Jesus Through Middle Eastern Eyes, I was introduced to this book recently. He lived over 40 years in the Middle East, and I'm just loving reading this book, Jesus Through Middle Eastern Eyes. He says, here is something that Lazarus could have said. Fill in your imagination a bit. You're half-dead dog. I see you recognize me, and you can call me by name. You saw me outside your gate, but you did nothing to alleviate my pain. Where were you when I needed your help? Now you want me to serve you? I can't believe it. Father Abraham, leave this monstrous ego to fry in hell. He fed his dogs, he would not feed me. What he is now suffering is only half of what he deserves. Lazarus could have said something like that. Maybe the people were expecting something like that in the story. Instead, one of the amazing features of the story is that Lazarus says nothing throughout. He just doesn't, he's not one of the actors in the story at all, as far as we can tell. So really it's up to Abraham. What is Abraham? Lazarus said nothing. What is Abraham going to say? That's what he said. But Abraham said, child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here and you are in anguish. And besides all of this, between us and you a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able and none may cross from there to you. Now have you ever wondered why he even has to say the first part? That no one from here can cross over to you. Why would anybody want to? Who would want to leave the comfort of being in Abraham's table and go to the other place? Why does he say that here? I've never asked a question until I went through this parable to study, to preach it. And one um, commentator had an interesting suggestion. <laughs> he said, what if there was a volunteer? Because there's only one person who could have been a volunteer and that was Lazarus. What if Lazarus had actually said, okay, I'll go. I'll help him. <laughs> If so, we can't read too much into the silence of scripture. We have to be careful about things like that. But if it's true, and it's only the only suggestion that even seems to make sense of Abraham's statement, that no one from here can go there, and Lazarus has just been asked to come. If it is true, Lazarus is not only incredibly patient that keeps him from this angry, explosive response to, to his continuing to be treated this way by the rich man, it also shows a heart of compassion. But be that as it may, what we do know is Abraham calling him to remember, which in the language of the prophets means a call to repent. Think, think, change your mind. You're not going to be able to come here, we're not going to be able to go there. That's the situation. The curtain comes down on act two and leave the rich man to digest this new information. What is he going to do now? What is he going to say? Will he repent now? Will he plead with Abraham for mercy? No, actually this is what he says. And he said, then I beg you, father, to send him to my father's house. 
For I have five brothers, so five more people enter the story, that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. We don't know for sure, but these five men were, his brothers were probably the same social strata. Maybe they were part of the group that came for his wonderful lunches and dinners all the time. Maybe they were part of the people for whom Lazarus had become blind, uh, had become invisible as well. For the rich man, these people still mattered. The Lazaruses of this world didn't matter, but certainly his equal, his brothers mattered a lot. And if Lazarus cannot serve me here in Hades, maybe he can be an errand boy on earth. He still, his view of Lazarus still hadn't changed. Okay, you can't serve me, you can go back to earth. Send him to earth, so he can serve my family. His class structured world was absolutely intact. Fully expecting Lazarus either to serve him or to serve the people that mattered on earth. The fire did nothing to change this man's twisted values. Which allows us to make a few important observations about where this man is. And this is the first one, we want to write it on. There is no repentance in hell. This popular notion of hell as a divinely designed torture chamber, full of people who are repentant and are longing to get back to God and waiting for a second chance, and stiff-armed by an angry, vengeful God, is about as far from the scriptural view as we can imagine. There is no repentance in hell. In the book, in the book of Revelation, for those of you who are not familiar with it, it's the last book of the Bible, which is part of, it's called apocalyptic literature, which is uh, truth conveyed in powerful imagery. We are, we are told this about how they respond to the judgment of God. The fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun and was allowed to scorch people with fire. They were scorched by the fierce heat and they cursed the name of God who had power over these plagues. They did not repent and give him glory. People gnawed their tongues in anguish and cursed the God of heaven for their pain and sores. They did not repent of their deeds. Do you notice what the rich man never asked for? Never once did he say, I'm in anguish, can I please come there and feast at your table? Or to sit at the same table with Lazarus would be unthinkable. No, he didn't ask to go to the place of comfort. He wanted to be comforted while still remaining where he was. With his own views of who he is, who his brothers are, and who Lazarus is perfectly intact. This brings us to another important insight about both heaven and hell. What we are now gradually becoming by choice, and I think this, uh, the blank has been left out in your notes there. What we are now gradually becoming by choice is what we will be confirmed in for all eternity. The trajectory of our lives right now are moving in one direction or another. You and I will have to live permanently with who we are becoming here on earth and will permanently have become with a whole community of people who are exactly that way. A couple of observations we can make about the eternal condition. Now having said that, we might say, but listen, at least the guy for, for some time at least is thinking about somebody other than himself. Even if it's only his own brothers. So how would Abraham respond to that request? Seems like a reasonable request, okay? Have mercy on them, if not on me. Although he was messed up in his views of Lazarus as being an errand boy. Well, Abraham says this to him. He said, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. <laughs> Basically what Moses is saying, look, they can go to the synagogue every Sabbath. And when they do, they're going to hear from Moses, which means Genesis to Deuteronomy. They're going to hear from Isaiah and Jeremiah. They're going to hear from Ezekiel. They're going to hear from Micah. They're going to hear from uh, Hosea. They're going to hear from Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi. And all he meant was, and in those you will see hundreds and hundreds of teaching from the word of God on how they are supposed to treat the Lazaruses of this world. 
He said they will have plenty of opportunity to be taught how to live and many warnings of neglecting it. What makes you think if the fire didn't change your heart one bit and if the scriptures don't change their heart that the word of an errand boy is going to do anything? That's what basically Abraham is saying. But of course this rich man wasn't used to anybody saying no to him. And so he said, no, no, you got it all wrong. He says, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. Of course, if it was just an errand boy on earth, that will have no value. But if somebody comes back from the dead, like if my friend Max had woken up and gone to the bar, surely then they would hear, right? Sounds plausible. Something like that would carry... By the way, this immediately implies that the five brothers also knew that Lazarus was dead. Abraham's shocking response to this brings the curtain down on the play and leaves everybody hanging for a few moments. He said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. That's the answer to my question. If Max had shown up, it would have been a second round of drinks until their fear subsided. So much wisdom packed into this last sentence, which is why the parable ends at that point. Let me unpack first of all. First of all, it's this. God owes us nothing beyond the scriptures. We have Moses and the prophets. And we have a lot more. We have the four gospels. We have the book of Acts. We have all of the writings of the apostle Paul and all the apostles called the New Testament. They are sufficient to teach us how to live. They are sufficient to warn us. They are sufficient to show us the path of salvation and prepare for eternity. You see, the spirit in which investigation needs to be made is directly addressed in this statement. There may be people here who are saying, look, you know, I'm not ready yet to commit myself to Jesus. I'm still on this journey. I have a lot of questions. That's okay. That's okay to ask questions. Young people, we've heard Trevor talk to us about people in university losing their faith. If you're in that group, it's okay to ask questions. But the spirit in which you ask the question is absolutely crucial. It is the difference between what I call intellectual integrity and intellectual arrogance. So here's the next question. In your seeking for evidence, is your seeking for evidence marked by intellectual integrity or arrogance? And here's a simple question that will cut its way right through that to tell you which one it is. So if there's anybody here who has those questions... Imagine for a moment, what if I were to take you aside afterwards and in one day or a few days or a few weeks or a few months, in many, many conversations, I were to answer all the questions that you had with a reasonable degree of certainty and a greater degree of certainty than any other life questions that you have for which you want answers. If I were able to do that, would you then bow your knee to Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior and follow Him for the rest of your life? If your answer is yes, then your seeking probably is marked by intellectual integrity. If your answer is no then it's marked by intellectual arrogance. You see, the testimony of Scripture is very clear. The Bible, Jesus tells, God tells us through the Word of God that there is enough evidence in, in the visible universe for us to know about the existence of God and His power, but people do not want to change their ways, and so they actually suppress the truth. That word for suppress is an active word requiring energy. Think of being in a swimming pool. One day it will get warm enough to get back into the swimming pools. And then... Have you ever tried pushing those tubes or those rubber balls down there? They keep popping up. How much effort is required to ride one of them? That's the idea behind the word suppress. The truth keeps coming up and people actually suppress it because they don't want to change the way they live. So you need to ask this question. Is your seeking for evidence intellectual integrity or arrogance? And so here's the next question that I'd like some of you to consider. 
In what way are you suppressing clear evidence for the truth of Jesus and scriptures and hiding your desire to continue your present lifestyle and values by asking for more evidence? In what way are you suppressing clear evidence for the truth of Jesus and the scriptures and hiding your desire to continue your present lifestyle and values by asking for more evidence? Well, the play is over. I've noted a few observations and I've asked a few questions both of skeptics and those who are Christ followers. But if you've been tracking with me through this parable series, you need to be asking me a question at this point. So you've been teaching us that the parables come from two words, para and bole, which means to throw alongside. That the parables are things that Jesus throws alongside something else to make us stop and take notice of something else. So what is the something else along with Jesus through this parable? Because unless we look at that, we will misunderstand the purpose of the parable. And that's why I think many people have misunderstood the primary purpose of this parable. Because they didn't look at what Jesus threw it alongside of. You see, one of the questions that this parable leaves us hanging with, how did the rich man become like this? What made this man become so hardened on earth and so unrepentant even in hell? Why did Jesus tell this parable? Okay, these, this parable starts in the 16th verse of Luke chapter 16. 19th verse of Luke 16. Back up 6 or 7 verses to the larger story along with Jesus through this parable and we'll get the answer to the question. Here's Jesus speaking. This time he's teaching. If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, mammon, which is the Aramaic word for money, who will entrust you true riches? And if you have not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God in money. It's after this that Jesus told this parable. So you see, this parable has nothing to do with teaching us the details about the afterlife. They are there incidentally. Jesus' primary purpose in telling us this parable is to stop and make us take notice of what he has just been teaching about the whole issue of money and possessions. It's as if he was saying, you cannot serve God and money. Let me tell you a story of a man who served money. It was his self-indulgent lifestyle and the misuse of his resources that hardened his soul to a point where he was hardened on earth and unrepentant on the other side. So here's the next thing you need to notice. How we handle our money has a potential to directly affect our soul. That was the whole point of Jesus' words. If you then have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will trust you to the true riches, the riches of the soul? Jesus forged a very strong relationship between the way how we handle our possessions and our money and the condition of our soul and how it can affect it. So let me ask you another question. How could the way you are now handling your wealth, and by the way, just remember, whether the wealth is little or lot, that's a relative thing. This applies to all of us. How could the way you are now handling your wealth either help or hinder your grasp of life-changing spiritual realities? Because they are connected. And so this is a question we all need to ask ourselves. To put it another way, how is what you have, either little or much, working to bless others and advance the kingdom of God? You see, the reason Jesus said you cannot serve God and money 
And by the way, it's the only thing he elevated to the status of a rival God. He never said that about anything else. He said the reason you cannot serve God and money, here it is, is because money is the only thing that convincingly promises to give us what only God can give. Money promises to give us power, pleasure, possessions, status, acceptance, significance. And the reason I put the word convincingly in there is that it looks like it does for a lot of the time. Certainly on the outside, what it covers is what's going on inside of us. Money is the only thing that gives what promises to give and seems like it will give what only God can ultimately give. That's why he raised money to a status of a rival God. And so in this context, serving means trusting. If he says you cannot serve God and you cannot serve money at the same time, in other words, he says you can't look to both of these things to give you all the things that really matter in life. You can't look to money and to God to give you pleasure, power, possessions, popularity, significance, acceptance, all of those things. If you're looking to the one, you're not looking to the If you're trusting one, you're not trusting the other. It becomes an issue of trust. So now we see the purpose of this parable, right? Is to point out to us that incredibly powerful thing money is. And the potential that it has to enlarge our souls or to shrink them. To soften or to harden. To some of you, I don't know who you are, this might come as a necessary warning. As a wake-up call. To most of you, I trust it comes as an encouragement to continue doing what you're doing. You're a generous congregation. Uh, Trevor's given you an expression of gratitude for this one example. Many parts of the world are blessed through the people that you invest in. You've certainly taken good care of us as a family here. So I appreciate and I'm thankful to this congregation. And my hope is that for the bulk of you, something like this comes as a great encouragement to just continue to become even more generous. To see the Lazarus even more clearly. But there are some of you for which, and I don't know who you are, that it might come as a very solemn warning and a wake up. One last question, which is unanswered for us, and with that we're finished. What happened to the five brothers? At their brother's funeral, did they actually begin to get a wake up call? Did they say, you know what, we better get back to the synagogue? We haven't been away from it for too long. Did they start listening to Moses and the prophets? Did they start treating the other hundreds of Lazaruses in the village differently? We don't know. Just like last week when Pastor Sam walked you through the parable and the father went and asked the elder brother to come back into the celebration, the parable ends. It doesn't tell you, did he come back or not? We don't know what happened to the five brothers and we don't know what happened to the elder brother. So the reason is the same in both cases. Because last week you learned that the point of that story, the point of the story about the elder brother was all about the Pharisees. Because the Pharisees were mumbling and grumbling that Jesus was eating and drinking with sinners and tax collectors. This story, the five brothers, is also about the Pharisees. Because after saying you cannot serve God and money, and before he told us the parable, we read one more important verse, still telling you it's all about money. He said the Pharisees who were lovers of money heard all these things and they ridiculed him. Grumbling at his eating with sinners and tax collectors had now become ridiculed because Jesus was saying such things about money. You see, again you will see that this point of this story is not so much about what happens after we die 
as much as what was happening around them right there this I, this business of lazarus the outcasts of society feasting with abraham was already happening in jesus time sinners and tax collectors and lazaruses were eating with him lepers who had been healed women were following him and the pharisees were grumbling and the younger brother coming back from a distant country back to his own land was a picture of the exile becoming over. People were returning to the land. In Jesus the exile was over. Sinners and tax collectors were coming back. Pharisees? No. In the same way, the last statement that if someone were to return from the dead and come back, they would still not believe was also something about this world. It was about to happen in three days after this, a literal Lazarus was going to be raised from the dead. Now you see why he named this one man. Because there was a Lazarus that he was going to raise from the dead. And did that make people believe in Jesus? No, it did the exact opposite. You see the clip? Crucify him, crucify him. You know what sealed Jesus' death sentence? It was when Lazarus was raised from the dead. That's when they said, now the whole world is going after this man. We need to kill Lazarus and we need to kill Jesus. So when a man returned from the grave, they didn't believe. This parable was just to prepare them for what was about. And then even more spectacularly, a few days after that, Jesus was going to rise from the dead. One greater than Lazarus was going to rise. Not just a resuscitation, but a resurrection. And did that change people's minds? <laughs> well, a few of them, Nicodemus was a Pharisee. But most of them, what did they do? And the, and the Sadducees, who by the way were the chief priests, and they were the land, the Pharisees loved money, the chief priests had money. One wanted it and one had it. Not much different between the two of them. And they said, come on, you guys soldiers, if somebody asks you how come the tomb got empty, just tell them that somebody came and stole it. So you see, this story was being acted out. So we now know the elder brother didn't come back to the party because the Pharisees didn't. We know the five brothers were not repentant because the Pharisees were sneering. Because one loved money and the other one had it and wanted more. But as in all of these parables, it always comes back to you and me, right? Because this is the one heart that we do know about. So let me put these questions before you again. Who are the invisible people in our lives that God wants us to start noticing? Is your seeking for evidence intellectual integrity or arrogance? If you're not a Christ follower. In what way are you suppressing clear evidence for the truth of Jesus and the scriptures and hiding your desire to continue your present lifestyle and values by asking for more evidence? And then back to those of you who are Christ followers. How could the way you are now handling your wealth help or hinder deepening your grasping of life changing spiritual realities? Let's pray together. No, no wonder they called you the master teacher. No wonder people were amazed and said, where did this man, son of a carpenter, learn to teach like this? And Jesus, we stand amazed at your feet. Thank you that 2,000 years later, these, your stories still have power to penetrate our hearts. And we thank you that they do. Thank you that you love us because we'd much rather have our hearts penetrated today 
than to allow them to be hardened to the point where they don't change at all. The fire cannot change our hearts. The words of scripture by themselves cannot change our heart. Not unless as we sang at the beginning of the sermon. Spirit make your words alive to us. So will you invest these simple questions. Of profound questions from your, from your own words. With the power to penetrate us. Or whether you are still making up our mind. Whether we should follow you or not. Or whether we are your followers. I just plead with you, let them do that end run around our defenses, Father, both conscious and unconscious. And give them power to lodge within us like birds under our saddle, like a piece of stone stuck in our our socks that continues to remain with us and agitate us until we have dealt with it. And continue to reveal to us, Lord, your beauty and your glory. That our journey forward will not be one of reluctance, but one of glad obedience and joy. Because you said that whoever saves his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will keep it. In Jesus' name. Amen. You know, from first to last, this service has been about the Spirit leading us to know Jesus better. (laughs) That we might trust Him more. So my blessing for you is that that desire that we just sang would be deepened in you. May you be freed from a too easy satisfaction with your life. May you have a deep and an abiding longing for more and more of Jesus. And may you keep asking Him for that. In the full assurance that it is a prayer that He delights to answer. Go in Jesus' name.